Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Jonathan Butcher, and I am a senior policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you for joining us today. We have an excellent panel of speakers with us with different experiences and backgrounds to talk about this important policy issue of police in schools. Now, before I introduce them, let me give some quick housekeeping items. Just quickly, you should see on your screen a slide that will talk about a couple of these. Thank you. So, First, we want you to be a part of the conversation, so thank you for being with us. Please submit questions throughout this event in the question box, which should be there on the side of your, of your screen. Uh, be sure to tell us your name, affiliation, and where you are from, and we will get to as many of these questions as we can later on in the event. Please remember, we are also recording uh, this event, so there'll be a link available to re-watch this uh, once we are finished, and that link will be available on Heritage's website. So with that, uh, I believe we have one polling question that we wanted to ask our audience members. And so there, you should see that on your screen. So please uh, take a few moments to answer this question. This will be up for uh, a little under a minute. We'll have about 45 seconds to answer this question. And this will help to give those of you in the audience and those of us who are here on the panel and in the event an idea of uh, what you think about this uh, about this question. So please take a few moments. And I think we have just a few more moments to log in your answers for this. And once the time is up, we will have the results of this quick poll available right away, I believe. Very good. Okay, so we have uh, a pretty overwhelming majority of those with us who are in favor of this idea. Well, wonderful. So let me now, thank you. Let me now invite our panelists to enjoy, uh, to join me on the screen and I'll introduce each of them. So first we have Grace Johnson, who is from Santa Fe, Texas. Grace was a student at Santa Fe High School and she survived the tragic event on May 18th, 2018 when an individual uh, brought a gun to school and took the lives of uh, 10 people at Santa Fe High School. Next, we have Representative Byron Donalds, who is from Florida. He has served in the legislature representing Hendry and part of Collier since 2016. Representative Donalds has uh, been appointed to a number of committees in the state legislature and different leadership positions, but one of his accomplishments that I and I know many of the parents uh, who are watching this event will be most interested in is his work on what are known as HOPE scholarships in Florida. And so we will get to those and other topics a little later in the program. So finally, we have my colleague at the Heritage Foundation, Amy Swearer, a legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies Amy is an expert on a number of issues involving law enforcement, and she has testified before Congress, and she has been seen on many major media platforms. So, Amy, thank you for joining us. So, before I turn it over to Grace to discuss her experience in Santa Fe, let me set the stage just quickly for us and why we're having this event today. So, first, there are approximately 14 to 20,000 school resource officers in schools today across the country. 
Now, estimates indicate that this number is effectively double what it was in 1999-2000. So there's been some pretty significant growth over the last 20 years. And of course, uh, some of you may immediately think of uh, Columbine, Newton, Connecticut, uh, Santa Fe, Parkland, and, and others that, that may be responsible for some of this growth. Now, um, remember that approximately half of all public school uh, public schools, so district, traditional district schools, have a resource officer present at school at least once per week. Schools with a thousand students or more are more likely to have officers on campus than our smaller schools. So after the tragic death of George Floyd, some school systems, including in Minneapolis, renewed a call to remove law enforcement from their schools. And it wasn't just Minneapolis, Portland, Oregon, Denver, Oakland, several other large systems have either done it already or there is discussion underway now about removing these officers from schools. So that's why we're here and that's why we're going to talk through some of the different parts of uh, this topic and why it matters today uh, during this rather unusual back to school season. So with that, Grace, I'm going to, to turn it over to you. And so if you will have the floor. Thanks, Jonathan. Um, first, my name is Grace Johnson, and uh, I want to apologize for any network issues. We have two hurricanes coming at us right now uh, down in Houston, Texas. So I um, wanted to start off by introducing myself. I graduated in 2018 from Santa Fe High School in Santa Fe, Texas. Um, and unfortunately, there was a tragedy that year. Uh, there were multiple tragedies um, following Parkland. So um, in May of 2018, May 18th um, was a normal day for most of us, uh, especially seniors. You know, we were only a couple weeks from graduation. We didn't really have any tests left. Um, and so school was just a pastime for us. And I arrived at school that morning a little late, actually. I had slept in. And when I got there, I had banned first period. And so I decided to take a nap because I didn't have anything to do. Um, when I woke up in the practice room of Vance Hall, the fire alarm was going off. And I noticed that nobody came to woke me up, probably because nobody knew I was in there. But um, I walked out into the hallway and re quickly realized that there was no fire, but somebody had decided to shoot inside the school. Um, and at first I thought I was dreaming because the first thing you see when you wake up from a nap is not, you don't want to see your peers getting shot at. Um, so I quickly turned around and I ran back in and that's when some of the kids and my teachers were running in from outside. Um, they had gone outside for the fire alarm and as the glass windows on the side of the school started breaking from bullets, they, half of them ran towards the road and half of them ran back into the school. So we quickly had run upstairs into what was actually um, the AC repair room 
that happened to have access through the band hall. And it was this concrete room with steel doors, so we felt like that was the safest place. And that's where we waited for about an hour. Um, and while we waited, we called our parents, told them what was going on, because it was pretty early. A lot of our parents weren't even up yet. And I remember we, there was only about six of us, six students and two teachers, and we sat in a circle doing a puzzle because that was what we had to distract us from the sounds of gunfire less than 50 feet away. Um, after about an hour of uh, doing a puzzle and praying and calling our parents, the, we heard a knock on the door down below. And so our teacher ran down and it had been the SWAT team. So that was our okay to go. We walked downstairs into back into the band hall and they asked us to leave our stuff, our backpacks, everything, but our cell phones pretty much. Um, even if our cell phones were plugged into the wall, we weren't allowed to get those. Anything that wasn't on our person. And they had us put our hands on our heads like this, and we started to walk out of the school. But as we turned that corner, there was blood everywhere. And you don't expect to see that ever, really, but especially inside of a school where you're supposed to be kept safe. Um, and so as we walk out, past all that for and out into the street, you just see, I mean, crowds of news crews and ambulances and anything you can think of. And I had already known that the news crews were there because they were calling me while I was sheltering in place, trying to figure out what was going on. And I just remember thinking that was so stupid because they didn't know where I was. They had gotten my number from public records and were contacting me on Twitter and Instagram and they were calling me. And I just remember thinking like, how stupid is that? <laughs> I haven't even out of the school yet. They took us down to this gas station that was right across the street um, where we waited for uh, buses to take us to the junior high where our parents could pick us up. My dad, I had called about um, five minutes into our sheltering in place, had already made his way to the school from work and was running down the street to pick me up because he didn't want me going with anybody else. And that, all of that pretty much happened within the span of two hours. Um, as my parents and I sat down to have breakfast afterwards, we quickly realized who was rumored to be the shooter. And I think that's what took me by surprise the most was because it was a kid that I sat next to in forensic science every day. He was a junior. He wasn't, I mean, I guess he was kind of a loner, but a lot of us are. Um, he didn't strike me as a violent person. He had a group of friends that he sat with every day. Um, and so I was very surprised. But 
that rumor turned out to be true. Uh, and we went home. I mean, what do you do after being shot at? And I remember sitting in my bed for a couple days and my parents just trying to get me out of the house. I, uh, I had lost my brother in a car accident two years before. And so I think my mind had just shut down because I, I didn't realize how quickly people can die so young. You know, when you're growing up, you're almost have a feeling of being guaranteed at least 80 years on earth. And it wasn't until after the shooting that I realized that that's not a guarantee at all. You can die in a car, you can die going to school. So when I finally decided to get off my butt and do something, I got pretty um, involved in trying to change the system. And so we had gone to um, a roundtable event in Austin, Texas with Governor Greg, Greg Abbott. And he had a roundtable with students and teachers and parents, basically trying to hear our sides of the story and what we feel like should be changed within the school system. And I spoke for a very long time. I don't remember all of what I said, but it came down to things like having a separate alarm, like a fire system, but for intruders. When we were younger, we used to have intruder drills and code words that would be spoken over the intercom. And once we entered high school, they just didn't do that anymore. Um, we also wanted substitute training. One of the biggest heartbreak, I guess, of that day was that there was AP testing. And so the teachers that were killed were substitutes. Um, they were not trained for situations like that. And because of that, two teachers lost their lives and one of the teachers narrowly escaped with her life. Uh, substitutes don't have keys to rooms and stuff like that. There was no way to lock doors. So we also, I mean, there were various things that we talked about, but um, I remember the biggest thing that affected me was that we lived in a small town where, where a lot of people don't lock their doors at night. And so if that specific kid had knocked on the door uh, at the back of the school where my classroom was and said he was late for class, I would have let him in. I would have trusted that, you know, I've been there. We've all been there. We've all been late for class and you don't want to get a tardy slip or whatever. I would have let him in. And I think that affected me the most. Um, the places I remember going afterwards was they had events for us everywhere. Um, I mean, sports teams were inviting us to their games and we had like an event at the dog track for seniors um, because that was our last day of school until graduation. Um, and even then we were not guaranteed that graduation would even be at our school. So they threw this like party. That sounds like a bad word to say after the shooting, but that's pretty much what it was, was a party um, at the dog track. And there was a ton of like 
gifts and stuff that were given away, raffles, whatnot. And it seemed really silly because we're sitting there and just thinking, 10 of our classmates just died. Eight of our classmates, two of our teachers, and 13 other people wounded. And they're giving us fishing poles and tickets to Texans games and stuff like that. And it just seemed really silly. But, you know, people were really trying to make us feel better. So, however, the one thing that set us apart from shootings like Parkland was that there was no use of uh, what people call an assault rifle. <laughs> Um, it was a sawed-off shotgun and a revolver, if I remember correctly. Um, a lot of people have those in their homes for protection. And not only that, but there were no signs. With Parkland, I know that there were a lot of posts and stuff, if I remember, um, that kind of made sense after the shooting. Like, this kid should have been flagged. That wasn't, that didn't happen at Santa Fe. Um, like I said, the kid, I met him, he seemed like a sweet kid, maybe a little, a little weird, but we're all a little weird. Um, he didn't seem like somebody who had so much violence to show. Um, and then lastly, our police officers were armed. And a lot of people don't arm police officers in schools. They don't feel like it's necessary. But I can tell you that I would not. I don't know what would have happened if Officer Barnes um, was not armed. The art classes and the hallway leading up to the art classes were the main area of um, the massacre that happened. And I, we were in the band hall just down that hallway. I don't know if they weren't armed, if the band hall would have been next. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of things that we don't know, but um, I'm, very, I'm very thankful that our officers were armed. Um, because first responders, you never know how quick they're going to get there. Um, our police officers are fantastic, but... We had had a false, false alarm shooting about a week after Parkland, where some kids let off firecrackers outside the school. And so they could have thought it was another drill and taking their time. And, you know, so I'm very thankful to Officer Barnes and the other police officers who protected us that day. I know Officer Barnes, I think, uh, flatlined four times in the ambulance, and, uh, but he's still here. And I know he wouldn't say it, but I would say that he's a hero to a lot of us because not only did um, the shooter have enough ammo for the whole school, he also had bombs that thankfully did not go off. And I know that was not um, put in a lot of the news, but he had bombs laid throughout the school. Um, so I definitely think it is a to have armed officers. Um, obviously, I think they should be trained like real officers. 
and um, have background checks. And, you know, I know the police academy does like psychiatric testing and all of that before they even allow somebody to go um, to train to be a police officer. But um, I definitely think school officers should be treated the same as regular officers, same testing, same background checks. Uh, because if, you know, I'll never know what would have happened if our school officers hadn't been armed that day. And I'm just really thankful that they were. Thank you, Grace. That was a, a powerful story. Um, I had, it's hard to even uh, hard to even describe. Thank you for sharing it with us, and thank you for for being here. Um, so now let's um, uh, we, we've we've talked about the student experiences, and you know ultimately this is um, it does come back to the adults in the situation, and whether it's uh, policymakers or educators. So let's um, let's start to to change the perspective a little bit. So Representative Donald, um, I invite you to. Um, uh, say a little bit about what you know life in florida had had been like after, after parkland and uh so please floor is yours uh <clears throat> thank you jonathan um gracie thank you for sharing uh that story with us of everything that happened um i will tell you that after the parkland shooting um legislators frankly were really trying to wrap their arms number one around the tragedy but then number two what could we actually do, which would, which would be substantive? And the third part was really trying to assess what, what the failures, what the gaps were. Um, <clears throat> in, in the interest of with uh, Nicholas Cruz, who was uh, the perpetrator at Parkland, there were signs that were missed uh, by a local, by FBI in a local office, by local law enforcement. Uh, there was an SRO who was on duty at that school. Uh, the SRO made a decision not to engage Nicholas Cruz. Um, and so that's what actually led to um, as, as many lives as was lost at, at Parkland. Um, the other thing that we saw that there was actually um, a, somewhat of a failure of school security protocols. Uh, most schools in Florida, a lot of schools in Florida, uh, they had moved to single point of entry after the shooting at Sandy Hook. And so Florida had started making a migration. Not all school districts could do it. Uh, but some of them did where they made sure that if you were going to access the school, you had to come in through the, either the main admin center or a single point of entry to access uh, the entire uh, school's campus. I would say, you know, after after definitely after Parkland, there has been a major push to make all schools in Florida a single point of entry. Um, uh, most of our schools have SROs. There are some that don't, obviously. Um, and that's because it's a sharing agreement between local law enforcement and the school district. I know that in uh, Collier County, this, the, the SROs are armed. In Lee County, the SROs are armed. They are trained um, as they are law enforcement officers. They're sheriffs. Um, and so that's something that that is a slight adjustment between counties. Uh, the last thing I'll say is really two things. One of the major policy ideas that came through after Parkland was the uh, Guardian program that is in Florida law. It actually puts the decision in the hands of local school districts if they want to go through a guardian, uh, a guardian program. It's actually named after Coach Aaron Feist, who gave his life at Parkland to protect uh, three students. Um, and so he gave his life so that three students could live. Uh, that program calls for extensive psychological evaluations, extensive firearm training in order for uh, school, per in order for school personnel to conceal carry 
in the schools. And in some respects, I have a, a guardian program, a sentinel program in schools. Uh, there are three counties in Florida that have adopted it. Hendry County is one of the three that have adopted it. Uh, from what I'm told by my local sheriff and local sheriffs run the program it is very extensive. They don't approve everybody. There are people who, there have been people who applied and they have been denied because they couldn't make it through the psychological evaluation portion of the training. Um, the last part is uh, something that we started taking a look at last legislative session, and I, th I think we got it through at the end, was uh, a, an alert system, a, a, a cellular-based alert system that could be carried on uh, cell phones of school personnel so that they can quickly um, alert law enforcement that there's a shooter on the ground. So there's not one person or an SRO who's responsible uh, for letting off, setting an, an alert out to local, local law enforcement. Um, I think that's something that is very critical um, because the quicker you can get response to a shooter, um, the less lives that'll be lost, the quicker will be to apprehend the person. And I think if you look at some of these school shooting instances, there's been a couple of issues. Number one, how quickly does a shooter access the area of the school they wanna get to? Number two, what is the alert response system? And number three, and this is the hardest point, and I'll, and I'll stop here, um, whether you have SROs or you adopt a guardian-type program, I know there are several counties in Texas that have a guardian program. Uh, the reality is when you have an active shooter, uh, your school personnel, your teachers, they truly are the first line of defense. And so is there a real dialogue that has to be had about a, a, a guardianship, a guardian-type program uh, in schools, understanding what the real risks are? So I'll stop there. I know we have a lot of to get through in the panel. Thank you, Representative Donalds. Those are all good points. Let me piggyback on that last one you made about response time, because in uh, in doing uh, some research over the past year, I came across a, a story of the incident that happened in April of 2018 down near Orlando, where, and this was on the anniversary of Columbine, if I'm not mistaken, and an active shooter went to a campus when all of the students were filing out of the school building. And that campus did have a, a resource officer there on site and within three minutes was able to stop the shooter um, from uh, causing, you know, causing serious harm. So that that was a, an, an interesting, um, I think example of, of, of some of what we're discussing here about having someone on hand who can respond quickly. Um, Grace, just wanted to let you know that we had someone from the audience say, thank you for your candid honesty and strength to speak about it. So uh, that's a, a thank you from one of the folks who are watching, uh, watching our event. Make a comment about what um, Byron had just said, that after the round table in Austin, we had elected a guardian program that what they eventually wanted to do was screen teachers who were comfortable having a safe in their classroom with a, care, uh, a gun of their own so that um, in, in instances, because sometimes the office, like in our case, the officers were on the wrong side of the school when the shooting happened. Um, and so I know a lot of people were in favor of teachers going through background checks. And if they decided to, being able to keep a gun in a safe, a locked safe in a locked desk in the classroom. Yeah, thank you, Grace. Yeah, um, so Representative Donald. So let me let's let me move back to you for one question, and then we'll move on to Amy, if that's okay. So um, before we get too far, Representative Donalds, can you talk to us a little bit about the Hope Scholarships? Tell us a little bit about the genesis of that and and where it is today, and how that relates to really the bigger picture of everything that we're talking about. 
Well, the Hope Scholarship was a policy idea that came through the legislature, which really tried to address um, the victims of school violence, uh, kids who had been um, assaulted, uh, sexually abused, robbed, um, uh, bullied. I think the national headlines really called it the bully bill, but it was far more than just bullying. Uh, in Florida, there are uh, more. There were more than, um, if I remember correctly, 50,000 incidents of actual school violence, violence where a student is arrested um, or there are heavy suspensions uh, given for the violence. And so if a student wasn't feeling safe in their current learning environment, um, the parents would actually be given the opportunity to transfer to any school they want or to actually receive a scholarship to attend a private school of their choice. Um, the, and again, this is all about what happens to that child who no longer feels safe. Um, if the child doesn't feel safe, are they going to learn? If they're skipping a certain class to avoid somebody, if they're skipping lunch, hiding in a bathroom, things of that nature, how does that impact the academic trajectory of that child, of the victim? And so the Hope Scholarship was really designed to address the victim so that the victim had an opportunity, if they truly wanted to move on, that they could do that. And so that was essentially what that's essentially what the Hope Scholarship does. Excellent. Thank you, Representative. And I know that proposals have been introduced in other states, Arizona being one uh, of a very similar idea. So uh, with that, uh, Amy, I'm going to turn it uh, over to you. I know you had some remarks to start before we move to some questions. So Amy. Good afternoon, and, and thank you, everyone, for joining us for this important topic. I want to touch real quick on three key points about SROs. Uh, so the first is the role of SROs in school shootings. Uh, the second is the role that SROs play uh, in intervening with more common types of general violence at schools. And then third, to sort of push back against some of these more recent claims about, you know, what does the research actually say about SROs and arrests of students and, and perceptions, especially of minority students and staff. Um, so th this first key point about the role of SROs in school shootings. So despite this common perception, I think a lot of people have that school shootings in the United States um, are, are common everyday occurrences. The reality is that our nation's students are actually very, very safe statistically at school. Um, so out of 55 million K-12 students across 100,000 K-12 schools uh, in this nation, only an average of 10 are going to die from gunfire uh, every year at school. Many, I think we all agree, uh, and many of those will also be suicides or interpersonal disputes and not necessarily these Parkland or Santa Fe type mass shootings. Uh, but again, as, as I'm sure Grace uh, just attested to, these types of Parkland style shootings are devastating for communities. And so we really should care uh, very clearly about protecting students from these events and one part of comprehensive approach to school safety from, from the view of you know, these, these devastating types of events is to have a quick armed response. We know that this saves lives. We know it from the data, which shows that uh, these shooters basically are intent on continuing to shoot until someone stops them or they are confronted and they take their own life. Uh, and we also know it from firsthand accounts uh, where school resource officers reacted quickly to a dangerous situation uh, and drew the shooter's attention away from students and towards them. Uh, effectively saved uh, by drawing the shooter's attention away from them. Uh, Santa Fe is far from the only example of this. In 2018, in Dalton, Ohio, or, sorry, excuse me, Dixon, Illinois, uh, a school SRO saved 
countless lives at a graduation rehearsal in a very similar situation. Uh, 2019, uh, I believe just after Santa Fe, uh, Great Mills High School in Maryland, uh, there was a school resource officer whose quick response to uh, an active lives. And last year in, in Wisconsin, twice within 48 hours, um, you had uh, armed students who were immediately confronted by armed uh, school resource officers. And that threat was uh, taken care of within seconds and not within minutes, uh, again, saving a lot of lives. And those are just some of the, the, the many examples of, of this type of interaction. Uh, but I think what's important to keep in mind when we're talking about SROs is because these types of school shooting events are very rare, what you're actually seeing uh, is SROs who spend the bulk of their time actually intervening in more common uh, mundane types of violence that, that this conversation doesn't get brought up uh, quite enough. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad that uh, Representative, you, you brought up this issue of more mundane types of violence. Uh, because what SROs are actually doing most of the time is protecting students and staff from things like fights, um, you know, knife threats, a student who has a violent confrontation with a teacher. Um, they're intervening to protect staff and administrators from you know, violent student outbursts and basically serving as a professional, uh, trained intervention um, in these more mundane, common types of violent interactions. Um, and, and they're also doing things like, like stopping kidnappings. I mean, two or three stories just from, from last year, this last school year, which was cut short by coronavirus. Um, you know, you had in D.C. a school resource officer from a charter school who stopped a convicted sex offender who was a attempting to kidnap two children from an after-school program. Um, you had another school resource officer in Hebron, Kentucky, um, intervened to arrest an attempted kidnapper uh, who's attempting to off campus. Um, and so these are much more common types of things that, that I think also get overlooked in the role of school resource officers and student safety. Um, and I think very quickly, uh, to a, I think a great resource um, to, to sort of push back against this this assertion that you know, school resource officers are arresting minority students, uh, referring students too often for criminal charges. Um, and, and that resource was actually referred to me uh, courtesy of my friend Ryan Petty, uh, whose daughter Elena was killed at, at Parkland. Um, the organization Stand With Parkland, and I believe we're gonna send around a link, has a phenomenal section on school resource officers uh, and has compiled a number of really great studies refuting some of these. And I think a couple points just very quickly worth highlighting uh, from these studies is that SRO programs have been said since Columbine against in Sandy Hook, but juvenile arrest rate declined during this same period. And moreover, a number of these studies actually find that when you have well-trained SROs, they lead to lower numbers of juvenile arrests. Um, so that it's actually an issue of training and confining SROs to you know, the, their limited purpose um, is actually a good thing and, and that it doesn't lead to higher arrests. And finally, a very comprehensive study that looked at 160,000 students. Um, so it's very comprehensive, very in-depth and found that the majority, regardless of race, actually felt contrary to, to some of the stories you're hearing that they were treated fairly by SROs, that there wasn't this sort of racial disparity and that their perceptions are actually very different from the assertions being leveled um, by things like this recent Bloomberg article that Jonathan talked about. Um, so with that, I'll, I'll turn it back over to, to Jonathan um, and uh, any, any questions. Thank you, Amy. That's very helpful. Um, a reminder again to those in the audience, please feel free to submit questions. We have a number that have come in already that we're going to get to here very shortly, as well as there's a document, uh, a handout that you can download that has more information and links to some of the work that we have done at the Heritage Foundation on this issue. It should be in the window that's there on the side of your screen. 
Um, let me do this. So, I, Amy, I want to start uh, start with you and, and ask you a question first here. So, you know, like you had mentioned um, that there are not just the issue of people bring guns to school. There are other incidents involved here. I think in my research, I saw that there is about 1.4 million criminal related events in public schools every year. And so considering, you know, the thankfully and uh, uh, but comparatively small number of incidents where someone is bringing a, uh, a firearm to school. There are a lot of other things that these school resource officers are handling from day to day. Uh, I would just add that in Minnesota, there, a survey of school resource officers in 2014 actually found that they wanted more training. They asked for more training uh, in that survey, knowing that there are some unique situations that are going to come up. So with that, um, so let me ask you, uh, let me ask you this. So um, what, um, what about this um, combining of Mr. Floyd's death, George Floyd's death, and the immediate move to call for removing school resource officers from school districts? Help us, can you help us sort this out a, a little bit? I mean, what if, if anything is, is a relationship that we should, is there some relationship that we should be seeing here that we're not? Do we feel like, well, I'll, I'll let you answer. I, I was about to use the phrase political opportunism, but I feel like there's some of that there. So I, I'll, I'll let you take that. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I would agree that, that much of this is political opportunism. There, there isn't much of a link between, um, you know, one uh, very poorly carried out uh, arrest. And, and I think the death of George Floyd truly was a, a tragic uh, instance that that did not need to happen. Uh, but it, it's not something that we're actually seeing, even with the tens of thousands of SROs who are already in schools. You know, there have been a couple of high profile instances, um, you know, instances of six year olds being arrested uh, for essentially throwing temper tantrums or SROs who act in ways that, uh, you know, just like when when law enforcement officers who are not SROs act in ways that are inappropriate, um, you know, they, they have been punished, uh, suspended, reprimanded for that. And I think rightfully so. Uh, but the, the issue that I do think carries over is this issue of, of proper training uh, for SROs. And, and I think that's one of the few issues that sort of carries over from this. Um, but again, it's kind of tangential because when we talk about training for SROs, I think the important thing to, to keep in mind is that you want training for these SROs to be interacting with children. I think the data you know, pr pretty clearly shows, and in fact, there's a, there's a study on this in the link that we're sending around, uh, law enforcement officers are, are pretty good at adapting to situations across the board, you know, realizing that they're dealing with students. Uh, but that is something to continue to work on with training for SROs, uh, to understand that you know, they're interacting with students. You don't want to take general disciplinary problems in schools and turn them into criminal offenses. Um, you know, that, that's not good. And that is something that we want to avoid. And I think the way you do that, again, is by having very clear limits on what the purpose of those SROs is. You know, to break up fights, to deal with violent altercations, um, and, and then to surround them with support staff, school counselors, nurses, so that it, this is one part of a more comprehensive approach to school safety, um, both from, from instances of acute violence, like school shootings, um, but also then to deal with, you know, disciplinary problems, more, uh, you know, lower level violent outbursts, stuff like that. Um, so one, one part of the whole, um, and I think the carryover is, again, focus on adequate training for them. I appreciate that. Thank you, Amy. And I think um, this, the idea that we should, that contracts should be disbanded entirely, it just sounds very final to me. It doesn't sound like there's a lot of room for conversation about what a school community may need. 
Um, Representative Donalds, I have a question for you. Um, so the question is a specific one about the HOPE scholarships, uh, and it asks, are HOPE scholarships a tax credit scholarship style program, or are they uh, uh, otherwise, uh, or are they a voucher style system? Can you explain uh, between the two? Because for those in the audience who may know, Florida has the largest tax credit scholarship program in the country, and so that is funded through tax credit scholarships. How, how, does, how do the HOPE scholarships work? Uh, <clears throat> Hope scholarships are actually funded through a tax credit system with uh, automobile purchases. So in our state, um, the first $105 um, of the sales tax associated with the sale of any vehicle in our state can be assigned to the Hope Scholarship Program. That was a, whoops, hold on, kick my thing there, kick my stand. That was uh, the methodology we decided to use in order to, to raise funds uh, for the program. It actually ended up uh, being a higher participation rate than we anticipated. Uh, so there definitely are dollars there in order to do it. And I think probably what will happen is future iterations of the legislature uh, may decide to go back in and make some adjustments uh, now that we know what the participation rate truly is. Um, real quick, I'm going I'm to piggyback a little bit off of what Amy said with respect to SROs. Uh, listen, removing SROs is just stupid. I don't understand why school districts are really going down this line because they're really getting caught up in politics. Amy won't say it. I'll say it. I'm an elected official. Uh, this is politics and it's dumb because the reality is, is that our SROs do far more good in our schools than the stories of, of an SRO who did something with like respect to the, the arrest of the, the six year old girl that did happen in, in Florida. I um, mean, I think that that's an incident where that SRO was disciplined and should have been disciplined. Uh, but they do far more for our schools. And so if there are school districts around the country who are following this defund the police movement, uh, frankly, to, to score political points or to quote unquote look good, what they're actually going to end up doing is providing a, a, a creating a vacuum of, frankly, enforcement of what's acceptable in, in schools and furthermore, the, the ability to actually engage in some of the more violent acts that do occur in our schools. Thank you, Representative Donalds. And, and I think your answer is uh, is very well-rounded, right? I mean, the YouTube videos of a officer doing the wrong thing at a school is, you know, those are heart-wrenching to watch, right? And we certainly hope that those are, are isolated, but they travel so fast on social media that we feel like they somehow represent something. When in reality, if there's more than a million incidents a year involving some sort of, you know, discipline or criminal activity at a school, you know, the the isolated events that we see coming over social media don't represent, you know, what's what's really going on. And of course, that leads to what Amy was talking about, about the urgency for important training. Um, Grace, I just wanted to tell you that we did have another comment from someone in the audience who's thank you, thanks you for your courage and for sharing today. So I wanted to pass that uh, to you as well. I think I think those in the uh, audience were really, um, really touched by what you had to say. Um, all right. So, Amy, a question for you here. And this is a this is a good one. This is a bit of a technical question. So are there successful legal strategies that can be used to challenge this idea of either defunding or, um, so defunding school resource officers, or I think what they mean is somehow um, diminishing discipline, school discipline um, in uh, safety uh, avenues in, in schools. And so, you know, you and I uh, have, have both kind of dealt with this since, since Parkland, right? I mean, we've seen, especially in California, right, there are some measures there that have limited what um, uh, school officials can do to sanction students. So, 
Uh, can you speak to us a little bit about that? Are there are there legal uh, avenues there? And then Representative Donalds, I'm going to come to you. Are there policy angles here um, that can be used to challenge this idea of either defunding resource officers or um, efforts to limit discipline? So Amy, you first, please. Yeah, you know, it's it's hard when you're talking about legal avenues. I, I'm, I guess, presuming this question deals with uh, lawsuits, um, not necessarily, I mean, frankly, I think always the best legal avenues is to get involved in, in your local state community politics and, and to uh, change the laws, to change the policies. Um, but in terms of pushing back legally, I, I mean, you, you might find some novel arguments. Um, you know, Florida certainly had some, some legal arguments uh, in terms of charging the SRO who who did not uh, do his job at Parkland uh, in terms of criminal charges, um, you know I'm I'm not sure there there's any straightforward legal avenue to to pushing back in terms of civil lawsuits, in except in a an unfortunate sort of ex post facto way, um, you know that the school failed to protect my child uh, by not having law enforcement there and um, a fortunate way to, to go about. Uh, I think you might see more of those types of lawsuits as the defund the police, defund SRO movement continues, uh, especially if there is harm as a result of that that could arguably have been prevented by the presence of, of you know, some sort of SRO or law enforcement response. Um, but I, I think the best response is a, a measured policy approach to it. Yeah, thank you, Amy. So Representative Donalds, so on to you. And this as soon as we begin talking about school discipline, that really brings up, you know, that's almost a, uh, it's obviously a related policy topic, but it's a whole area of research and discussion unto itself. Can you tell us a little bit, I mean, policy-wise, as lawmakers looked at this issue of, you know, what what can parents do or what should parents expect from lawmakers as they try to not, I guess, uh, follow what is, uh, whatever the, the, tr the trend is or whatever the, uh, you know, the, the going sentiment is to, to get rid of school resource officers or to limit school discipline? Well, I, I think this is one, as a legislator, you know, parents and community activists need to be very careful. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that you definitely want to make sure doesn't happen in, in your state is that the state legislature is starting to add school discipline, frankly, into the criminal code or create another another section of 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 statute around school behavior. Uh, you don't want that because if you have legislators writing this, uh, frankly, they're not on the ground. They're not involved in the day-to-day -day actions of school. Um, and I don't think that's something you really want to put in the law. You're dealing with minors. And so you don't want to put that into law. So I think that's the first part is stay away. My advice as a state legislator is stay away from state legislators who want to be more active with, with, with the statutes of your state to address school uh, behavior and, and punishments associated with that, or to minimize uh, the a local district's ability to address school behavior and whatever the role SROs have in that in that structure. What I highly recommend is people actually get engaged with their school board members and uh, their superintendents. Um, this is actually dovetails somewhat into politics because I think what a lot of communities find when when tragedy strikes, they go to their school board members about this stuff usually first. And they realize the school board members have very little say or haven't really paid much attention to what the policies are at the local district level. Um, the local district policies are usually written by the superintendent and rubber stamped or ratified by school boards. 
And so what I would recommend communities do and parents do is make sure you have good uh, elected school board members who are always reviewing policy, who are not, I don't want to say this, who are not taking the mantle of a, as a school board member to be a cheerleader for their district, but is using it, is taking that role as as somebody who's in a policymaking capacity, who's always reviewing and holding district employees and district staff accountable for what the policies should and should not be um, in their communities. That that's the far better way to go, because every school district is is different. Um, every school community and every uh, every uh, 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 school district is going to have their own ways about going around and policing these things and, uh, and really identifying the risk and figure out what those procedures are going to be. That really needs to be a community conversation with local officials. It's definitely something you don't want to have state legislators doing. Yeah, thank you. And I, I appreciate that very much, Representative. I, I think uh, transparency is key and is always going to be key. I mean, I think that's that is the role of a school board member uh, and should be the role, uh, you know, of um, the educators and administration of, of districts as well. Um, so uh, with that, we have really just a few minutes left. And um, I wanted to um, I wanted to ask Grace uh, one more question and, and give her the final word here. Um, before I do, let me say this. So after the incident involving George Floyd and when the Minneapolis public schools made headlines about saying they were going to end their contract with law enforcement, um, the latest news from that district now is that they are considering the hiring of former police to act as security. Uh, I don't know if that has been confirmed uh, or if that has been settled or not, but it's certainly an interesting twist down the road of uh, of this topic now, um, because they, uh, I think there was some, the message that we, I think we got from a great many activists was that they wanted to disband police entirely. So this idea that now they're going to hire private security of people uh, involving people who used to be uh, on the police force is uh, is a bit of a twist in that whole um, in this whole path. So, um, uh, Grace, can I can I ask you as as we close out here, um, can you help us understand um, what what were the? I mean, I know you talked about how groups reached out all over the place to try to help, right? I mean, everything from tickets to you know things at the dog track and things like that. But what were the things that you felt like did help with some healing? I mean, what what were either you know events? conversations or individuals? I mean, what, you know, what, what helped along the healing path uh, for you and for others? Um, personally, for me, the roundtable did a lot. I think what people don't realize is that they need to include students in changes that happen in the student's school. Um, I know for me, like I was graduating, so it didn't really matter anymore. Um, personally, to me, uh, like it wouldn't affect me. But a lot of students had an issue with all the changes that were being made because they weren't they weren't able to have a voice. Um, and I mean, any of you who have ever been in high school know that their kids will always find a way around things. Um, and so it, it was more about not they weren't even feeling safe; they just felt restricted. Um, and so I think I, I think what the roundtable did was it gave a lot of those students a voice, um, and, and the governor got to hear from firsthand from people who experience the day-to-day -day 
um, security system, day-to-day -day police officer morale and everything. Uh, so that personally was helpful. Um, I know we had a resiliency center in Santa Fe that was set up and that kind of went both ways. I know the first couple weeks, a lot of students like myself did not find it helpful because if you even mentioned witnessing anything, they were shoving FBI people down in your throat. But um, I know for the years following, it helped a lot of students, a lot of parents, um, a lot of teachers. And um, there were a couple girls, including myself, who, who started running a, uh, a nonprofit uh, to focus on mental health. Um, not only for people who have survived um, shootings, abuse, anything that can really put a toll on your mental health, but also for kids who feel like violence is their only way out. Um, and that's not saying that we feel bad for the shooter in any way, shape, or form. Um, but I know a lot of kids act out when, when they feel, uh, kids act out for many reasons. And so we had like a lot of art groups and um, we had a battle of the bands and a lot of things for students to be able to get, you know, reincorporated into the community. Uh, and we also gave out 10 scholarships every year um, in honor of the, the 10 who passed away. Um, and I know last year we only were able to give one because of coronavirus, but um, you know, it's, I mean, there's still things going on two years after the fact, um, people trying to get kids more comfortable reincorporating into the community. Yeah, thank you, Gracie. That's um, uh, that's really powerful. We appreciate that very much. All right, so uh, one final question. We had one final question come in. Um, so let me ask, I'm going to direct this one to Amy. So Amy, can you comment how SROs play a role here in maybe preventing violence from happening um, first? Yeah, so one of the things that, that uh, doesn't get talked about a whole lot is actually shootings that are prevented, acts of mass violence that are prevented. Um, and when you look through some of this data on prevented acts of mass violence, uh, often what leads to prevention instead of you know, an act that is carried out uh, is that there's this constant link in the chain where someone notices something, is able to report it to a person who can then do something about it. And SROs very often play an important link in that chain of communication, um, empowering, if you will, students to have a voice, a place that they know that they can go, a person they know that they can go to, to report, you know, hey, I know that this other student has a gun in their waistband and is very upset at, or showed up to school with a weapon um, or, hey, even in, in terms of more mundane, uh, mundane, but still very serious acts of violence, uh, you know, sexual assaults on, on school property. Uh, sometimes you see even reports of, of violence at home um, that the SRO at the school becomes sort of this connection between students and law enforcement to report these types of threats. Um, and this happens far more often than you would believe that SROs uh, become an important link in that chain where students feel comfortable reporting. Um, and and it's, it's actually very, very hard to track data on this because those instances of violence are prevented and you don't know what would have been 
but for that SRO being there, being that link in the chain, um, and being that person to whom a threat is reported who can do something about it. Um, and so I think that's a, a very, very important thing when we're talking about, um, you know, en enabling students' voices to be heard because they're the ones who are so often um, seeing and hearing these, these threats you know, before they become reality. Thank you, Amy, and thank you to all of our panelists for being a part of our event today, and thanks to all of you who tuned in today. Uh, we are so grateful that you joined us. Thank you for your questions. Um, there is information about each of our panelists on the screen in front of you, and uh, please remember that this event will be made available. There'll be a link to a recording of it uh, in the next uh, couple of days. Please download the handout that's there on the corner of your screen, and to everyone, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we wish you all uh, a wonderful afternoon and hope you will join us at a Heritage Foundation event again. So thank you.